This is Jeff Otis, and you're listening to the Evergreen Exchange. We discuss topics related to macroeconomics, investing, personal finance, and general wealth management. Today, I'm talking to our Director of Investments, Jeff Dix. Jeff's been with Evergreen since 2011 and holds the designation of Chartered Financial Analyst. He also has a degree in finance from Cornell. He joined us after working at Bloomberg, Merrill Lynch, and Smith Barney. Beyond just a great colleague and a really smart guy, Jeff is a friend of mine who's helped me to guide countless clients as they invest and prepare for a secure retirement. I'm glad you've tuned in and hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm thrilled to have Jeff Dix with us today. Uh, Jeff is our Director of Investments. Um, Jeff and I have been working together for years now at Evergreen. Um, Both of us are partners and uh, excited to have have him here. So Jeff, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my first uh, edition of the Evergreen Podcast. So good luck to all the listeners out there. <laughs> You're going to do great. Uh, before we get started talking about uh, markets and, and strategies, uh, let's just catch up on you a little bit. How, how, how have you been doing during this whole period? How's family? Uh, give me a little, little update on, on life at home right now. Uh, well, it's it's certainly been a, a crazy year. Jeff, as you know, I started my career in 2007. Uh, working in New York City for Bloomberg. Um, The first two years at at Bloomberg during the financial crisis were pretty insane. I had friends at Bear Stearns, friends at Lehman who lost their jobs. Client communication with the the Bloomberg users was very sobering at the time. Um, and, and, And to say this year was even more crazy than the financial crisis is a pretty big statement. And I've been here for almost a decade now in February, April, has been the busiest time of my career. Um, Obviously, living through a pandemic has been itself highly abnormal. Um, Really, there's been no playbook. Uh, It's been nerve-wracking, stressful, Um, you know, especially for us living just a few miles away from the Wuhan uh, of the United States, i.e. Kirkland, where the epicenter was. But then in addition, New York City was a a huge breakout, and that's where my in-laws live, so being you know, having family in Washington and having, having family in New York has been highly stressful. Um, but we've managed and, you know, things are good. Um, and on top of that, you know, one thing you and I share, Jeff, is we have COVID babies. So it's, you know, this year having a one-year-old, uh, you know, even in March, our daughter was four or five months. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a crazy year. I know you've, uh, you've had your share of that as well with, with your four kids and your new baby. And congratulations, by the way. Yeah, you too. Uh, yeah, our little guy's—he's nine months now, and you know, we're, we're there's a lot of there's a lot on our plates these days, isn't there? But as you talk about the year so far, I mean, I, I've, obviously uh, it's been a different year for all of us, and uh, especially at Evergreen, working uh, primarily remotely. Um, at least uh, many of us have been remote. Uh, fortunately, we have Microsoft Teams as, a, as an app that allows us to connect with each other. And I, you know, I, I remember specifically kind of going through February, March, kind of late February, all of March, April, May, et cetera, with you. I mean, we talk almost every day, uh, if not multiple times a day. And just remembering, uh, yeah, just just how how much you you guys were doing at the at that time. Um, yeah. But I thought that that would be a great uh, great place to start. So. Um, yep. Let's get into let's get into kind of what's happened this year from an investment perspective, um, you know, market related. Let's do a little recap and just kind of like rear view mirror this. 
up to yep. where we are today. But in, in your kind of from your viewpoint, why don't you take us through and let's just start at the beginning of 2020 and what you know what's what's played out to where we are now. Yeah, yeah. So where I'll start is is that you know in terms of financial markets, the amount of volatility we have seen this year is like nothing we've ever seen. If you actually just rewind back to the financial crisis, the stock market peaked in October of 2007. It took over a year for the market to pull back 35%. Eventually, the market fell 55%. This year, the market pulled back 35% in just over a month. And that was only 23 trading days. 40 of the 40% of those trading days were up days. So, so in, in, in just 11 or 12 trading days, you had basically the equivalent of the full year sell-off in 08-09. In addition, if you go back to 2007, it took six years for the S&P to register a new high. Um, obviously, the magnitude of the decline was greater back then, but this time around, it's only taken six months to register a new high. So we've essentially had a six-month period that was like a six-year period to a certain extent from 2007 to 2013. So it's been, it's been, it was stressful, but we feel like we did a really good job for clients. Uh, heading into uh, this year, we were highly defensive. Uh, we were concerned about equity market valuations. Uh, in addition, the credit markets looked extended as well in terms of credit spreads being very tight, uh, or, or said differently, corporate bond yields were, were paying very little uh, yield relative to the risk you were taking. Um, in addition, as February transpired, uh, what really helped us was our team at GAFCAL. Uh, and as you know, Jeff, we, they have many, many analysts, many portfolio managers on the ground in Asia, and we were starting to kind of see what was happening with COVID. And, and I do remember on one of those calls, we discussed how oil demand uh, had fallen 10% in China because of their shutdowns. And that is an incredibly large contraction uh, for energy demand. And then once we saw uh, COVID start to break out in Italy, that really caught our attention. So we, we were defensive heading into this year, but fortunately we were, we were able to do a little selling uh, in February to get our clients more defensive. Uh, and then we had the meltdown that occurred that we just discussed. And you know we didn't really know when it was gonna end, but one thing we do, uh, we talk about all the time is small corrections, we do a small amount of buying, uh, and large corrections, we do a large amount of buying. And as the sell-off accentuated or accelerated, we uh, got clients more aggressive. And fortunately, we had so much dry powder that we were able to rotate out of a lot of our safe assets and buy up uh, items both on the equity and income side uh, that in hindsight were really good purchases. And if you think about the turnover, uh, a lot of our portfolios have 40%, 50% turnover in just two months, and that's more turnover than in any year that I've been at Evergreen. Um, so fortunately, we've had this big recovery, uh, and we we're able to get our clients much more uh, aggressively positioned, uh, so, so we feel like we handled this quite well. Um, it was stressful, um, and of course, the, the tremendous amount of government support, uh, the Fed stepping in was a, was a huge indicator on our end that you know, things likely had shifted uh, in late March, uh, in addition to the Fed buying corporate bonds, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Yep. But that really uh, tipped our hand to, to get clients more aggressive. 
No, that makes sense. I mean, I think that's a good recap, generally speaking, of saying how defensive we were to start off the year and then uh, being pretty opportunistic with, with what we were seeing in in, a, in March specifically. Uh, but then fast forward a bit, you know, March, April, March, April, May, June, July, even August, uh, you know, conversations started to, to turn a bit here with the uh, with the recovery and how substantial the recovery was, and maybe just do like a you know the, a quick recap of the last 30 to 45 days and what we've been seeing, um, and then and then we'll go from from uh, you know what we what we're seeing right now. Yeah. So if you look back to, I'll even go back a little further. So July and August, uh, we had uh, pretty good months for the financial markets and. You know, we took that as an opportunity to pare back a little bit of what we bought in March and April, and and we just thought the market had run so far. And a lot of the technical indicators we look at, um, whether it's you know looking at the moving averages and how far above certain indexes are, looking at RSI's relative strength indexes, um, all of these things were were highly highly overbought, and. You know, especially I think tech was was probably the most egregious. The Nasdaq uh, at one point was 30% above the 200-day moving average, which hardly ever happens. Um, I, it did get get to that degree in, in the late 90s. Uh, but July, August, we took that opportunity to, to trim back exposure. Uh, we felt like we were due for a bit of a pullback, uh, and we have seen that peak to trough through today. The market's down around 9%. Uh, and lately, we've actually turned around and started to do a little buying. Uh, so in the in recent days, we've uh, say the last three or four trading days, we've stepped up and we've done some buying on the on the equity side. We've done some buying within our equity income securities. Uh, we've been adding cor- some corporate bonds that have sold off as well. So we've taken this little risk off um, move as a as a buying opportunity. However, we, we it hasn't been a massive sell off. So we we've only done a little bit of buying so far. Yep. So then that brings us to today in terms of where we're at. And let's break things down a little bit in terms of what we're seeing in the bond market versus stock market. And uh, ultimately, I want listeners to take away that, uh, you know, at any given time, there's areas that are going to look good and areas that are going to look bad. And, and, And our style in terms of managing money that we think is at least unique to what we provide to clients is we're pretty tactical and dynamic in terms of what we do. Um, you know, we don't just build out portfolios and then just kind of like blindly reallocate at the end of each quarter, you know, with some trigger button. Like we really are paying attention to markets on a daily basis, looking to see if there's opportunities, um, you know, to, to, to put money to work, pull money out. Uh, so our style is quite a bit more active and tactical. Uh, and, and so the, I want that to, I want that to at least show in terms of what we're, what we're thinking about right now. Um, sure. so let's start, let's start with stock market and broadly speaking, let's just break down kind of what you're seeing going on between growth, uh, versus value. And then we'll go from there. So let's start with gross growth versus value in the stock market. Sure. Um, well, you know, obviously we just talked about it. The, the stock market is going through a correction phrase, uh, phase. And I don't, I don't really like the word healthy correction, uh, but if there ever was a time to use one, it would probably be now. As mentioned, technicals were very, very overbought. Um, it looked really, and, and even valuations looked really expensive on most most metrics. So as, I, as we just talked about, we did a little bit of de-risking coming into this, but probably the most extended was large cap growth and, and in large cap growth technology. And if you think about growth versus value, 
our view currently is, is, is somewhat neutral between the two. Uh, with that said, we're gravitating, gravitating our portfolios more towards value stocks. If you, if you think back over the last decade, we've been largely overweight, large cap growth. And if you, look at, if you look at growth relative to value, growth has historically traded at around a five-point valuation premium to large cap value. And it has a specific example, if large cap growth trades at a 20 times PE multiple, you would think on average that large cap value would trade at a 15 point multiple. Over the last decade, prior to the last year, large cap growth largely traded inside that premium and even traded cheaper than value. Uh, over this time frame, say 2009 to 2018, large cap, large cap growth earnings grew at a much, much faster clip relative to large cap value. So despite the massive outperformance, valuation over that time frame still favored growth. This year, if you look at returns, large cap growth is up 20%, large cap value is down 13%. So 33% outperformance from large cap growth relative to large cap value, which is something you hardly ever seen see in this short of a time frame. And what this led to was large cap growth trading at a 20, per, 20 point premium to large cap value at the peak of the uh, rally earlier this month, um, which had us taking back our tech exposure, taking back some of our large cap growth exposure, and rotating that into value, uh, which, which at this point to us uh, looks as attractive or more in some instances. And we do have an inter internal sector model that uses fund flow and valuation. Uh, and just to highlight, at this point, that model is neutral tech. Uh, but as I mentioned, we're shifting more out of growth and into value. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. Um, it's interesting from my end, uh, you know, working with with clients and especially new clients uh, or talking to prospective clients about returns they're seeing versus indexes or even versus our strategies. And, you know, it's, it, at least for this year, it's so obvious, you know, why why some are lagging, you know, if, if their portfolio is built out primarily using, you know, value stocks whereas others are really feeling good about how well things have gone if they primarily own, you know, large tech companies, you know, so I see that at least from our view. I don't know if everyone is tracking it, obviously, like we are. So I just think it's helpful to, to point that out in terms of what has 2020 been like, um, you know, for growth or, or value. But let's move on, uh, you know, and as we're talking, if there's, if there's questions that you have uh, as you're listening to this podcast, just jot them down and at the end, uh, you know, feel free to shoot me an email uh, or give me a call and I'm happy to go, go through one-on-one -on -one, uh, with you as you're, again, as you're listening through this. Um, so let's move on from growth versus value and talk about U.S. versus international and just break down the, the two there. Yeah, so as you know, Jeff, most of our clients are U.S. based with U.S. liabilities primarily. So generally speaking, we carry mostly U.S. dollar assets that pay U.S. dollar cash flows. Um, however, we do have a leeway to go up to 25% international within our stock portfolios. And currently, you know, with our policy in terms of, you know, fiscal policy, monetary policy um, being very expansive in both regards, we are worried about the U.S. dollar devaluing over time. Uh, and what that means for our clients losing purchasing power over time in dollar terms. 
so we have been shifting more of our exposure to currencies with more restrained budgets, um, so stronger currencies in international markets. Uh, in addition, valuation is just far more compelling internationally relative to the U.S. So to answer your question, we've been shifting more internationally, and we are slightly bearish the U.S. dollar over the next three to five years, I'd say, intermediate time frame. Uh, so we're carrying about our, our our max international. We're around 20% international for equity portfolios. We, we may go a little bit higher than that, uh, but we do think it makes sense, especially for people that have heavy exposure to U.S. stocks, to take some of that profit off the table and rotate into international stocks. Okay, I think that's helpful. And I, I was going to, I mean, we could easily pivot and go into the election, which we're not going to, but that, that could have huge implications on U.S. versus international head. Um, but we'll save that for maybe another podcast, right? Uh, I appreciate that. That might get some trouble. <laughs> Um, But no, I think this is really helpful. And and what I want from this podcast is it to be kind of a quick snapshot of these different areas and just for everyone to feel like they have a, you know, um, you know, idea of what we're thinking. So uh, let's move on to to large, kind of large versus mid versus small cap and what's what's gone on this year, you know, and what maybe opportunities are you see emerging as a result? Well, you know, if you if you think about small caps, the, the performance is similar to value stocks. So small caps year to date through today are down 12%. Um, similarly, how we favored large cap growth over large cap value pretty much over the last decade, we've also favored large cap over small cap companies for most of the last decade. Small caps from, say, 2010 to 2018, traded mostly quite expensive relative to uh, large caps uh, and generally traded at a premium to large caps, which to us, you know, doesn't always make a lot of sense. I mean, margins for large cap companies are far higher. Uh, They tend to be more profitable. Um, They tend to be more stable and more liquid. So for small caps to trade at a premium doesn't really make a ton of sense. Now we realize there's more growth generally embedded in small caps, Uh, but while they were that expensive, we felt like large cap was the place to be, uh, and large caps did did outperform small caps significantly over the last decade. Now, you fast forward to this year, and we've seen a rather big shift. So small caps, given the underperformance down 12% on the year, now trade at an eight-point discount to large caps. So if you look at the S&P, trading around 24 times, uh, versus small caps at 16 times. Now, what this metric, I, I have to go into this a little bit because someone might um, come back at those numbers, and, and this is excluding negative earners. And why that is important is the Russell 2000 has many companies that lose money, so it's hard to track an, a consistent valuation metric over time. So when comparing small to large, we use that indicator uh, and, and one thing I'd point out is that on 16 times earnings for small caps, that is understated or overstated. Uh, you know, it's far more expensive than that when you consider the money losers. Uh, but for consistency of comparison over time, it's a fair metric to use because it always has that embedded, uh, they always have those embedded money losers. With that said, today, uh, Russell, the Russell 2000 small caps trade at an eight-point discount to large caps. So what we've been doing is not only moving 
from large cap growth to large cap value, but we've been slowly rotating out of large cap and implementing uh, a larger exposure to small cap stocks uh, within our portfolios as well. Yeah, and and, I, and you know if you're if you're listening and if if there's terminology or if there's you know industry jargon that you're not you're not totally capturing or following along with, you're not alone. Uh, you know, I, there's Jeff and I we have these conversations every day, and I do feel like at times uh, I I play a little bit of translator uh, for clients, and but you know uh, that's that's the role for Jeff and that's the role for me, and I and I guess I would just say at the uh, at the end is if you want to help uh, if you want someone to recap any of this, just kind of bottom line it so, you, so it's a little uh, a little bit more digestible if that's kind of where you're coming from. I'm happy to do that for you. Um, but I also want this to be as technical as it can be for those listening who are a bit more technical. Um, so I just want to add that in there while we're going through this. Is that, is that all right? Sounds perfect, Jeff. Okay. So let's, uh, let's wrap up the stock market conversation, um, and then we're going to move on to bond market, but let's wrap up the stock market conversation on sectors, uh, yep. kind of like what sectors have done well, what sectors haven't done well, and where do we see opportunity uh, moving forward? Mm-hmm. Well, tech, uh, tech and discretionary have done exceptionally well this year, consumer discretionary and technology stocks. Tyler Hay, our CEO, has been really optimistic on tech this year, um, and his basic point is that COVID has accentuated the need for more tech in our lives, um, which I which I totally agree with. And especially as the world works more remote, you know, the adoption rates for many of these tech companies has skyrocketed, and many of these shifts that we've seen, we really feel like are likely more permanent in nature. And it's not only work, not only working from home and and teleconferencing, but it's digitalization of, you know, allowing for, say, telemedicine, online education, you know, remote trials for the law profession, you know, and of course, you know, digital platforms for interaction, consumer purchases, you know, and not only is this a boost to, to earnings this year for these companies, these companies have gained customers for years to come, and it's, it's really accelerated the business model for many of these companies, and and, and the customer base has seen habits that have changed. So tech, you know, you know, we we certainly think tech has has led the way here, um, and and we did mention tech has got ahead of its skis a bit, you know, say late last month, and we and like I said, we trimmed in on this rally, uh, but after the sell-off, we've started to add back weight. In addition to tech, discretionary has also done very well, led by Amazon, of course. Uh, and then communication services, that's a new sector that, um, you know, combined telecom with uh, some, you know, other companies like Facebook and Google. Those are the two uh, top uh, names in that sector. And if you, if you look at tech, or if you, sorry, if you look at discretionary and communication services with Amazon, Facebook, and Google, you know, you could make the case that, that certainly those have had a bit of technology tailwinds. Uh, as well. And then on the flip side, the sectors that have done poorly, energy has been the worst. It's been an absolute bloodbath. Um, we've seen one of the worst demand contractions on record for in terms of energy demand. Then you had OPEC and Russia have some supply disagreements earlier this year. The global lockdown, of course, suppressed demand at a time when supply was also elevated in certain areas of the world. And then it was also just a really tough environment 
with the shift to ESG investing as well. So energy kind of had that triple whammy and, and really got hit hard this year. Now, looking forward uh, for energy, uh, we we think the economy gets back to normal over the next, We I should say, I shouldn't say normal, I should say a more normalized growth rate over the next 12 to 18 months. And in that scenario, we think there's going to be more mobility in our economy. Uh, we think people are going to start flying again and traveling more, um, certainly driving more. We've already seen a big, big rebound in, in vehicle miles driven. Uh, but in that, essentially, we see demand snapping back. And we've seen really good demand numbers out of Asia over the last several months. Um, so, you know, looking out over the next 12 to 18 months, with us being optimistic on the economy, we think some of these virus victim sectors like energy should out, should start to outperform. And I put in financials in that area as well. Uh, it's been a very tough environment for, for financials. Uh, not only has the yield curve flattened significantly, so the difference between short-term rates where financials borrow and long-term rates where financials lend, that spread has collapsed uh, eroding the profitability of financials, but in addition, a lot of the loans on, on the financials balance sheets have deteriorated, so they've had to take losses uh, over the last couple quarters that have been very substantial. Now, those losses that they have taken, once the economy improves and these, these loans are going to be in better standing, they, they should be able to release these reserves. Now, we're probably a little bit too early for that, but we also think that the yield curve is likely to steepen which generally when long-term rates go up, financials outperform. Uh, so we do, we are optimistic on sectors uh, and even subsectors that are virus victims, uh, given our view that over the next 12 to 18 months, the economy reopens. Okay, and that's good stuff there. And again, we, we're happy to do a follow-up on any of that. As we move into the bond market conversation, I mean, I guess I would just first like to highlight that in my conversations with clients, uh, prospective clients, anyone really, um, over the last 13 years here at Evergreen, I mean, 90% of it, outside of planning conversation, which is a huge piece of it, but if we're talking about portfolio specifically, uh, or, you know, or markets specifically, I bet 90 to 95% of the conversation is on equity markets and stock uh, holdings, you know, what, what stock positions we like, what stock positions we don't like. It just seems like that's where most of in, most investors are, are kind of focused their attention. Um, and, and to be fair, like even in seminars, I just see a lot of conversation around equity markets um, and not nearly as much conversation kind of around bond markets and incomes and, and uh, income security. But we think bond markets deserve as much attention and as much focus in terms of managing money uh, as equity markets, and, and especially for clients that have 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% of their portfolios in bond securities. I mean, it, it's not uncommon for me to see clients that have, you know, like let's say 30, 70 portfolios, 30% stock, 70% fixed income-ish, kind of somewhere in that range, want to want to really just talk fully about equity markets and what's going on with it. And so I guess, uh, you know, as we go into this, just know from Evergreen standpoint, we spend as much time uh, paying attention to what's going on in the bond market and opportunities in the bond market as we do equity markets. And we think that that's, uh, you know, only value, value driven for the client. So let's start off, uh, let's start off with treasuries versus munis versus versus corporates, kind of what's gone on this year between those three areas, 
uh, and then kind of where do we sit now? And, and I'm sure you'll highlight kind of what Fed has done as a result, uh, what, what decisions the Fed, Federal Reserve has, has made that's Im- impacted those areas. Yeah, yeah. Let me um, let me just start on the broad bond market. I'll talk about those three sub sub segments. But I, what I would say is today the bond market is being manipulated like no other point in history. Uh, the Fed has brought short term rates to zero, and effectively, recently they said they're going to remain there for multiple years. They've in, they've engaged in bond buying to a degree that suppressed long rates. Uh, particularly in long-term treasuries, but also mortgage-backed securities. And then, uh, and then of course, COVID kind of accentuated that move given the flight to quality. So when everyone was selling stocks, they were buying treasuries, and that pushed the 10-year really, really low. Uh, and today it sits at 0.7%, which is actually up 20 basis points or so from the low. Uh, but nonetheless, we have basically the entire yield curve under one. Uh, and, and when you have the 10-year yielding 0.7% and inflation currently running at 1.3%, effectively, if you're buying the 10-year treasury, you're locking in a negative real yield for the next decade. And uh, a real yield is basically after inflation yield. Um, in addition, this year, the Fed engaged in facilities that directly bought both investment grade and then eventually high-yield bonds. On the high-yield side, as a technicality, they're buying high-yield ETFs and companies that were downgraded from investment grade to high-yield. Um, but, but that basically suppressed corporate bond yields. Triple B bonds now yield 2.35%, which is an all-time low. And that's at a time when default rates are rising, corporate earnings are falling. So it's, it's not reflective of the underlying uh, fundamental backdrop for corporate America, um, but it has alleviated a tremendous amount of stress by allowing these companies to refinance, by giving them loans, many of which are forgivable, uh, given that the government basically shut down the economy. So today, the bond side is really challenging, uh, but fortunately, we were able to lock in really good cash flows in March and April when a lot of these asset classes disconnected. <clears throat> and to go back to your point, Jeff, kind of talking about treasuries, munis, and corporates, uh, treasuries had a fantastic start to the year, performed just admirably well during the sell-off, uh, and you could add CDs into that category uh, that are backed by the government. Uh, so holding treasuries and CDs coming into this year uh, was a wise move. Uh, if you fast forward to March, we had uh, basically a full-blown liquidity crisis uh, you had a lot of munis down 15, 20%. You had corporate bonds down, you know, 15, 20, 30, 50% for really low-rated corporates. In some instances, more than that. Um, it was just uh, you had preferred stocks down 35, 40%, um, and really there was no bid in the market. Uh, and no one was buying, and 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 what accentuated that was the fact that. Uh, we've had a lot of regulation on financials, so their ability to hold these bonds on their balance sheet is significantly constrained. Uh, and when everyone was selling, there just was not, there weren't buyers out there. So when we would go out, and this is just kind of a side note from a trading perspective, when we would go out to get bid-ask spreads on these bonds, 
even an investment-grade bond would sometimes come back with a 10% differential, which generally speaking in normal times is 1%. For CDs, selling CDs were even a challenge, which are generally highly liquid securities. During March, we were selling CDs at a 2-3% discount to their market price uh, to go in and buy high-yield bonds, preferred stocks, equity income securities that were down 20 to 30%. In, in some instances, down 30 to 50% for some of these areas. So it was, you know, from our perspective, we were okay taking a little discount on a CD that was still up on the year to, to uh, recycle it into a highly attractive uh, other area of the income world, say corporate bond, uh, preferred stock. Uh, we added to some emerging market debt. Uh, and then we added to a variety of equity income securities like mortgage REITs, um, private lending companies that are traded like stocks. Uh, we added a bunch of preferred stocks. We had a, a, a bunch of different corporate bonds. Uh, and then we even added some value-paying dividend stocks. And I know we're talking about the income markets, but we do buy a lot of those equity securities that pay cash flows with our income portfolios. So it was just a, it was a crazy environment, but fortunately we were able to sell some of the stuff that did really, really well uh, and recycle it into some of the, the, the beat, most beaten-up areas of the, of the income markets. And what would you say in terms of some of the things that we purchased, like if you fast forward, what is it, almost six months now, uh, in, in, let's, talk, let's talk about some of those areas in terms of their value today. Um, and I guess let's stay in the lane of bond market, and then, we, uh, and then I want to go and, and discuss equity income securities. Sure, sure. So the bond market is, is really challenging right now. Uh, yields are just so low. I mean, uh, two years ago, we were buying munis in the 3% yield range, 2.75 to 3% yield range, which on a taxable equivalent basis, given you're not paying federal taxes, is quite attractive. And you fast forward today, and a lot of these yields are in the 0.5%, 1% range, uh, which are just really, really low. And even on the corporate bond side, investment-grade corporate bonds are yielding mostly 1% to 2%. And these are not two- to three-year corporate bonds. These are five-, 10-, 15-year corporate bonds with significant duration risk. Uh, and when I say duration, I, I, I just mean interest rate risk. Uh, so we've actually taken this opportunity, and we don't necessarily think there's a major credit issue with investment-grade corporate bonds or munis. With that said, I would say that those areas are more stressed than they were before COVID. Certainly, uh, corporate corporations have seen falling cash flows and rising debt levels, so leverage has gone up. On the municipality side, you've seen a tremendous amount of stress on municipal budgets from COVID. So from a fundamental perspective, these things have deteriorated, yet their yields are at all-time lows. In addition, with rates so low, you have a ton of interest rate risk embedded in some of these long-term bonds. And again, we're not necessarily worried that, that these positions are going to default, but when you think about the risk-adjusted return, we're not very optimistic in those areas, and we've actually been reducing those areas fairly aggressively over recent, recent months. Um, now, we still own some high-yield debt. Uh, you know, we like to buy individual corporate bonds, and we, we like to choose the credits, and we, we feel like there's good values out there for individual names. Uh, we also like areas like fixed to floating rate preferreds, where you get a nice yield pickup to a, a shorter call date 
and I don't want to get too technical here, but these tend to, to, to convert to a floating rate, which means they will pay you a certain percentage above short-term interest rates. And why we like that area is because you get a really good yield for a short time frame, call it 4 to 5%, and these are mostly investment-grade companies. And then they'll pay you, say, 3 or 4% above short-term interest rates. And what that does, it takes away a little bit of the interest rate risk. And if interest rates go up, you get paid a higher cash flow. So it kind of protects you from an interest rate perspective with how low rates are. Um, but we do still hold a, a decent amount of high-yield bonds. We're worried that defaults are going to go up. But we think credit spreads actually are going to remain fairly contained. And, and it's actually pretty interesting. If you look at credit spreads, <clears throat> During this recent equity market sell-off, high-yield spreads have only gone up 50 basis points. During a normal 10% sell-off, they go up far more than that, which is, of course, an effect from the Fed buying these positions. And if you actually look at the Fed credit facilities, they're really only, they've only really been marginally used, which means there's a lot of demand left from these Fed credit facilities to buy up these these bonds. And, you know, you know, we're really, really focusing on the corporate bond side on high quality, high yield. Um, we think there's going to be a lot of defaults. There already have been a lot of defaults in the, in the junkier space, call it the triple C space. There's going to be Jeffrey Gunlock thinks default rates are going to uh, double over the next year. Uh, you know, we, we certainly think they're going to go up and where they, they tend to, to come in clusters are in the triple C area of the bond market in the, the lowest rating of high yield. And actually, if you look at double B bonds over time, the default rate's only 1%. And you're getting a, a fairly attractive yield uh, that you're getting compensated. You're not taking a ton of duration risk. Um, you know, our average, call it duration, is four and a half, five years on those bonds. Um, so we're you know, we're, we're, we're cutting out some of the high-quality debt that's really low-yielding. We're holding on to some of our uh, high-yield debt where we think we're getting good cash flows within good companies. And we're rotating into uh, – we have a big position in mortgage-backed securities uh, and, and, and specifically agency-backed mortgage-backed securities that have the implicit Fed or government backing. Uh, and actually, that's one area of – the bond market, the Fed has been very, very aggressive buying. Uh, they were more aggressive earlier this year. They, they've certainly stepped back the amount of mortgage-backed securities they're buying, but they've basically said they will buy an unlimited amount of mortgage-backed securities if things weaken from here. It makes sense. They want to make sure funding and financing for mortgages is available. They want to keep mortgage rates low. Uh, to keep the housing market in reasonable shape. Um, and, and that area of the market, uh, you know, it, it, I'd, I'd give it an equivalent rating of the government, and you're getting a 1.6% yield with very limited duration risk. The duration is like two or three years on, on, on these bonds, and you're getting compensated pretty decently. You know, with short-term rates, treasury rates basically at zero or 10, 15 basis points, that's a pretty good spread pickup for mortgage-backed securities, and you're not taking really much credit risk there, if any, uh, and we think it's a good parking place because a lot of these areas in the equity income market that we're talking about have had big moves, uh, and we, we'd like to add to them uh, on a pullback, and we've had a little bit of a pullback here recently in a lot of these areas that we'll discuss coming up, but essentially, my point is the mortgage-backed security 
part of the portfolio, the big chunk we own, is earmarked to buy other higher income areas in the future. So it's sort of a cash equivalent that's higher yielding. Yes. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, what I would like to add to what you just talked about, it, you know, my big takeaway from all that is you just got to be careful. You know, if you're an investor, especially if you're doing it on your own and, you know, your general way of, of allocating your bond exposure is just throw it into a fund and kind of leave it alone, I think you're probably going to want to be, uh, you may want to use a different playbook given where, we're, given where we're at and where we're headed. And I have conversations about that all the time with people. Uh, and I think that that lends itself well to what we do um, because of how active we are on the, uh, on the income side, uh, fixed income or equity income. Jeff, that's a really, really good point. And I'll give some anecdotal evidence there. I was kind of reviewing a, a um, proposal by uh, from another firm, and I was looking at the, the bond ETF positions that they were recommending. And if you, what you can do when you look at an ETF is you can look at the FCC yield, which is effectively the current month's yield after expenses. And it's a really, it's a better indication of what the underlying securities pay, especially in an environment like this where rates have come down sharply over the last 12 months. And a lot of times a yield is quoted on a trailing 12-month basis, which is highly inaccurate given how far rates have come down, given how much credit spreads have contracted. And my basic point is when I was looking at all of the, the collection of ETFs and looking at the yields and then putting in the management fee, it turned into a negative cash flow for what uh, was being offered. And a lot of these were highly, highly um, – High, very high quality bonds, uh, and they weren't necessarily risky from a credit perspective. It just they were negative yielding after fee, which is a highly risky proposition when you're not getting paid any cash flow. You're taking on interest rate risk. And what I'd add on to that is that you know, given we're investing in a lot of different areas uh, with higher yields, we're able to generate you know, call it three to four percent after fee cash flow within our income portfolios. And, you know, with that said, we, our portfolios generate more volatility to be completely frank, but over time, we think we can add a lot of value by, uh, you know, allocating to different areas and then overweighting them and underweighting them based on the environment like we did this year by selling our CDs, buying high yield bonds, adding to equity income securities, trimming them into strength like we did two months ago, and then looking to buy into weakness like we're doing today. So being able to be active, but also use uh, a greater degree of, um, you know, uh, securities or, or sectors or, um, you know, asset classes within your income portfolio, we think is going to add a lot of value over time. I think that's great. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of what the point I was trying to make. And I'm glad that you were able to, to echo that here a little bit. We've got, we got maybe five minutes left and we're going to wrap up and hopefully we can get through three more questions before we do. Uh, but yep. I want to talk about three areas uh, and just get your feedback on it. The first area is, is on the equity income securities, which to be fair, we've talked a ton about already, but maybe just a general recap and, and bottom yep. line there. Uh, and then I want to talk about precious metals. Um, and then I want to talk about maybe opportunities in public versus private private markets, and then we'll wrap it up. So five minutes and let's start with equity income, which I think we should be able to get through pretty quickly. 
Uh, sure, Jeff, and yeah, I'll try to be a little bit quicker on these. Uh, a few areas we like are the mortgage reads. Uh, these are essentially companies that buy mortgage debt and leverage them up. Uh, we are focusing on the agency mortgage read sector. Um, you know, with the Fed buying basically an unlimited amount of mortgages and also the Fed uh, and the government keeping rates uh, on the short end very low. There's a nice spread to be made there. Uh, in addition, these companies are trading at cheap valuations. So we, we like the mortgage rates and we're focused on the highest quality players. We also like business development companies, essentially private lending companies. They're called BDCs. Um, we, we, we think that area is attractive. You have a, a very high current yield. A lot of these are trading below their net asset values. Um, we, we think they've gotten a little ahead of themselves here recently, but we'd certainly add to them on weakness. Uh, we like dividend paying blue chip, chip uh, equity plays. Um, so kind of like the, the value dividend stocks, uh, you can find very reasonable uh, valuations, call it 10 to 15 times earnings, very cheap relative to the market, good balance sheets. And a lot of these companies are paying 3 to 5% dividend yields, and they've had a history of growing them in the, say, 5 to 10% range. So we think that's an attractive area to be. We like certain sub-segments of the REIT market. Uh, we're avoiding retail. We're hesitant on office. Um, we're fairly uh, constructive on medical, uh, uh, the medical REIT sector, the healthcare REIT sector. That's an area we've been adding to. Um, we're also looking at multifamily. Um, so we're, we're selectively adding to REITs, but we're, we're a little cautious there. Um, and then moving on to precious metals and miners, uh, we thought it was a really, really attractive place to be earlier this year. The price of gold had gone way up. Uh, and in March, gold miners had, had corrected significantly without the price of gold moving down too much. So we thought that was a really attractive place to be uh, in, term, in terms of adding to the miners. But in addition, just with the tremendous amount of policy, policy support, with the amount of money supply increases, uh, the government handouts, the, the uh, unemployment benefits, just the sheer amount of uh, money supply added to the system, we felt gold was a good hedge uh, against the possible inflationary scenario. Uh, now, gold and gold miners had rallied significantly through June and July. Uh, for our clients, we had largely trimmed back a good chunk of that, you, you know, several trims we made up until July. Uh, we've had a pretty big pullback. Uh, we're getting ready to, to maybe add back a little. Uh, if this sell-off intensifies, we'll likely add back more to the space. Uh, and then in terms of public versus private opportunities, um, generally, we've been mostly investing on the public side over our, our, our company's life cycle, but we're looking more at private investments. Uh, just the sheer amount of the number of companies that are private relative to public has massively increased to the private side over time. So there's a lot of companies uh, that are private now relative to history, which would point towards the investment landscape. There's a lot of private opportunities out there. In addition, on, on the on say the income side, with how low yields are, uh, and, and you know we talked about it with you know Treasuries mostly yielding under one percent, with investment grade bonds yielding two percent. Um, a lot of these private credit companies can a lot of these private credit investments uh, historically have paid cash flows into the six eight percent range with uh, IRRs in the the double digits and. You know, you're giving up some liquidity on the private credit side, uh, but we think that there's going to be really good returns in that space uh, relative to public market debt over the next decade. So we're pretty excited about that space. 
the investment teams chatted with probably 15 to 20 different uh, private credit, direct kind of income plays on the private side. Um, so we're looking at uh, potentially launching a fund over the next six months. Uh, so more to come on that, but we are getting more excited about that space uh, and we're looking to uh, put some more client capital into the, the private space. Good stuff, man. I mean, great stuff. I, I really appreciate your time. I wish I could, I mean, you and I, and you know this to be true, if we wanted to go for two, three, four, five hours on this, we easily could. Because uh, we talk, we have these conversations. I mean, this is in the easiest podcast ever because yeah. you and I have these conversations every single day. Uh, I mean, not not as comprehensively as we as we have today, but obviously the bits and pieces that we go through. Um, and so I, I know most of the answers already. I could have probably given them um, not as articulately as you can, um, which is why I love having you here. Uh, and I will say it is it is nice at Evergreen for us to work as a team. I mean, I guess two takeaways for me in just this this conversation is one, man, it's nice to have a team uh, at Evergreen of uh, whatever it is, 25, 30 people, everybody having different roles so that we can all work together. Because given how challenging markets are right now, it really requires uh, specialization and for you to be on the front lines, uh, you know, at least in terms of managing our portfolios, uh, watching investment opportunities and taking advantage of those for clients and allowing me to, uh, you know, focus my time on, on meeting with clients and discussing what we're doing and kind of freeing up some of those, uh, you know, some of those roles. I, I think that really helps. So that's like one takeaway that I have. And two, uh, is I just, you know, listening, to, listening to you go through, all these different areas of the, you know, the equity market, the equity income market, or the bond market, and describing it, um, you know, obviously in, only, in a way that only you can, just shows me how challenging it would be for someone to try to do what we do all on their own. Uh, and obviously there's investors that like doing it, and I understand, and I talk to them all the time, and I think if you have a real passion for it, uh, you know, you should stay involved for sure. But uh, the idea that someone, uh, you know, on their own, being able to, to do what we can do as a firm, I just, it's hard for me to believe that. Um, and so I think that's part of the value that we provide is, you know, as markets are getting more and more complicated, uh, and, you know, with maybe uh, less and less uh, certainty of what to do ahead for many, it's nice to have uh, a firm, you know, or a team of people acting on your behalf. So, those are my two big takeaways. Others are probably going to have, uh, you know, other takeaways. Regardless, feel free to contact me directly. My uh, my my uh, email address is jotis at evergreengovcal.com. So j o t i s at evergreengovcal.com, and govcal is g a v e k a l. Uh, or my direct phone number, 425-467-4624. Uh, we're, we're more than happy to schedule one-on-ones, answer any questions that you have, talk more in detail about specific strategies we run, which range from more aggressive to more conservative and everything in between, uh, and then what we can provide from a planning standpoint and a tax planning standpoint uh, now as a, as a firm. So I really appreciate your time. Jeff, thank you very much, and we'll look to do another one of these here in the future. Jeff, really appreciate the comments and appreciate you having me on. And if I wasn't too boring for the listeners, hopefully we can do this again soon. <laughs> no, you're the man. I really appreciate it.
Thanks, Jeff. All right. Thanks.